How's everybody doing tonight? Anybody cold? That's what I'm talking about. Yeah, seriously. Put a coat on. Hey, uh, my wife and I just moved here like six months ago from Colorado, so this is like a welcome change for us, you know? You're from Colorado? Yeah, but it's been a while. Yeah, I hear you. You got to get back. Hey, uh, a couple of you guys asked while I was frantically trying to set up. So disclaimer number one, this projector, uh, <laughs> I called our tech guys and I was like, hey, what does it mean when the projector flashes bulb uh, burned out or whatever? And they were like, that's not good. So uh, the projector over there is dead. So um, if you want to try to, for those of y'all sitting behind the pillar or whatever, if you want to try to move um, to another place where you can see, then this is where it's going to be tonight. Or... <laughs> You got slides printed on the page, so you can follow along that way as well. But uh, hey, also some of y'all are asking about last week and uh, getting the materials that Ray talked about. And so, uh, if you go on Watermark's webpage, then you can go click on media, and then under media, there's a bunch of different uh, there's a bunch of different places you can go to uh, do like marriage ministry, children's ministry, you know. And then there's one called equipping, and if you click on the equipping link then it'll take you to answering the tough ones and all the slides and the audio from last week as well are loaded on that page. So if you missed last week, that's where you can find it. Okay? I'm going to give you a little uh, flyover overview about what we're going to tackle tonight, and then we're going to get started because we need all the time we can get. Um, first of all, my name is Nathan, and I serve here on the equipping team. I also lead the Great Questions team. How many of y'all know what Great Questions is? All right. Pretty good amount. All right, so Great Questions is a ministry that we do here. Um, it's in, it falls under the equipping umbrella. And we meet every Monday night, kind of in conjunction with uh, Regen. And, and uh, we basically are a team of people that, that uh, field people's questions. So whatever you are wondering about, if you're seeking and, and uh, are unsure about who God is or how all this stuff fits together, then we welcome you guys to, uh, to come on Monday night. And uh, sit in with us, and it's basically Watermark's version of, a po- of an apologetics team. And so I lead that team and uh, have a lot of fun with it. It's a great deal. And uh, just that's my kind of shameless plug to you guys that if you, um, whether you're in here tonight seeking or if you know some friends, which I'm sure all of you do, um, who are either hostile to Christianity or are truly seeking, then tell them Monday night is the place um, for them to come. It's a really welcoming environment. We, you know, Basically, as soon as the polemic gets heated, then we, uh, we do a pretty good job of maintaining a really respectful environment there. So tell your friends to come, ask their honest questions, and we'll honestly dialogue with them. All right, so that's Monday night. Great questions. So the, the thing that uh, I'm going to talk to you uh, tonight about an interesting uh, subject, and, and it's a lot of information you're kind of probably going to walk away from tonight feeling like you just drank a bunch of water from a fire hydrant, okay? Or, or, and, and that's okay. It's, it's, uh, um, this is an enormous subject. It has um, massive implications, and there's a lot of people that have written about it. And, and frankly, um, it, you know, with the um, books like The Da Vinci Code and with uh, um, some, some really national and even international debates about the veracity of Scripture or the reliability of the text. This, really, this whole subject has gained a lot of um, notoriety in the past five or, five or ten years. And so 
Um, I'm glad you're here, um, but just know that, you know, it's, it's the, here's the teaching style for tonight. I'm going to throw a bunch of plaster up against the wall, and some of it's going to stick, but most of it's going to fall down, right? So take the stuff that sticks, and then, and then we can just build on it. So that's why the handouts you have, one of them is the slides. The other one uh, is the one that's stapled together. Is, uh, there's two questions there. One of them is a question about the historical gap. And what I mean by that is the 10 to 15 years between Jesus' life, uh, death, and resurrection and, and when the first gospel was penned, which is the gospel of Mark. And so a lot of people are like, well, okay, the gospels were written, but there's, about, there's a, decade and a, half, a decade to a decade and a half where, I mean, there was no gospel written. So how do we know that people just didn't make all this stuff up? And so I answer that question, uh, that, that little page and a half, uh, little paper is a response that I wrote to a question that we got one time. And the other one is called um, uh, questions or, or on the Apocrypha. Anybody know what the Apocrypha is? All right, handful of people. Um, basically, if you, if you go uh, get a Catholic Bible, you're going to have the Old Testament and then the New Testament, and then you're going to have some books at the end called the Apocrypha. It's like extra biblical literature. And, and a lot of people are like, hey, why is that not considered scripture? And so I address that question in that, answer, or in that uh, little page and a half paper as well. All right, that's just for your own equipping. And then the third one is, is, the, is a sheet that I put together, a little bibliography, that if, if you're brand new at this subject, then, uh, man, the, the book to pick up is, is, uh, is Lee Strobel's The Case for the Real Jesus. And chapter 2 of that book, it covers the stuff that we're going to be talking about tonight. It's very elementary. It's introductory. It's definitely the place you should start. The intermediate reading is a book called From God to Us by Geisler and Nix, and that covers the transmission of Scripture. It covers the canonization process. It covers kind of like, hey, how did we get what, we, what was written back 2,000 years ago in regard to the New Testament and 3,500 years ago in regarding the Old Testament, how did, that, how did that get from where it was then to the Bible that's sitting on your desk right now, okay? And so that's, that's from God to us. Um, the subtitle of that is how we got our Bible, <clears throat> all right? And then the advanced stuff, um, I'm trying to remember what I put on there. Um, there's Blomberg's book on the historical reliability of the Gospels. There's uh, Boyd and, and uh, Eddie wrote a book called The Case, uh, no, I'm sorry, it's uh, The Jesus Legend, which I just finished reading about a year and a half ago, and, and uh, man, that, that, uh, that is... So in regard to the worldview, like Ray was talking about last week, in regard to the worldview of naturalism, which is there is no God, and, and we just kind of you know, showed up here, and, and uh, therefore whatever scripture is written about God obviously can't be true because there is no God, right? There is no miracle when all these stories about a miracle-working you know, itinerant preacher in Palestine, it's nonsense, it's hogwash, right? Um, I've never seen two guys disable that argument as well as Boyd and Eddie do in, in their book. So I high, if you're a reader and if you're a pretty um, critical thinker, I highly recommend that book to you. Um, and then there's Drew, Bruce Metzger, who, anybody know who Bruce Metzger is? All right, handful of guys. Um, man, he was, he's probably one of the, one of the uh, most influential textual critics that's, that, had, that ever lived. And, and his work um, uh, on the corruption and the restoration of, of the New Testament is, is pretty amazing. It's definitely an academic book, 
But if you're interested in this topic, you, that's kind of one, if you don't have it, you're going to kind of get laughed at, you know. Um, <clears throat> and then, what are the other ones on there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, the reliability of, of the New Testament. And then there was one more. Yeah, yeah, Dr. Wallace. So Stuart, uh, Stuart is the editor of that book. That's actually a debate between Bart Ehrman and Dan Wallace um, that, uh, that they put into book form. And then Dr. Wallace's uh, book on revisiting the corruption of the New Testament. Um, uh, and he talks through manuscript evidence uh, through the patristics and also the, uh, the Apocrypha. So anyway, those are, those are resources that you can dive deeper into. And then, as always, if you're just curious and you're like, hey, you know, I don't really, I'm not interested in doing all that work, um, but I have a really specific question, then, then you can always email us at greatquestions at watermark.org, and we'll, we'll, uh, we'll tackle the stuff for you, okay? Anybody got any questions before we start? Sweet. Let's pray. I guarantee you, you will before we finish. <laughs> all right. Lord, thanks for tonight. Thanks for uh, the ability to come into a building that um, is quasi-warm and to sit in seats and uh, to, to learn about the Scripture, the, the written word that testifies about the Word of God, who is Christ. And I just pray that um, we would never forget um, the sacrifices that uh, men and women have made on our behalf to create an environment that's safe and free of persecution. And I pray that tonight that your Holy Spirit would come and that he would teach and that what's said is clearly communicated and is um, effectively received, that we might go into the public square and not be intimidated, but know that the evidence and the truth is um, clearly seen. That is your truth. We just love you and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so a little overview of the class like we did last week. Oh, yeah, it's over here. So last week we covered what is truth. This week we're asking the question, is Scripture trustworthy? The next week, Aaron Graft, and then also week four, Aaron's going to be back to cover the problem of evil. Um, So in apologetic circles, they call that the the theodicy. Um, Why is there suffering and evil in a world if God is good? Um, Then week four is, is God sovereign in salvation? He's going to tackle the whole election debate between, you know, uh, John Calvin and Jacob Arminius and to talk about, hey, what, what does the Bible say about all of that? Is, does God elect some to life and some to death? What's going on there? And then week five, Ray Boland is going to be back. And I, I would just encourage you guys, if y'all, um, I mean, Ray did a great job last week. If for some reason you did not connect with him last week, then you want to come back on week five because science, he's, he has a PhD in microbiology, right? And that is his forte. And he gives a really good presentation on Genesis 1 and 2 and, and just science in general and how we reconcile that with, with what's going on in science today. Um, so definitely come back for that. And then I'll be back for week six to talk about world religions, why the Christian claim is unique and why it's the only, only one that's true. All right. But tonight we're going we're gonna to tackle this question, is scripture trustworthy? And, and really the three challenges that I broke this down into is, is one, uh, the, the challenge you hear pretty often, um, how many of y'all have ever heard this? Uh, a, a book, man, the Bible's been translated so many times, it can't be reliable. Anybody ever heard that before? All right, that's a pretty common one. People are like, I'm not going to read that. 
That's been translated for centuries. How, how in the world would I ever trust that, right? So that's, we're going to answer that one for sure. It'll, it'll be really clear. It's, it's a, um, I'm not trying to be crass or, or unfair, but typically people who ask that question just don't know what they're talking about, okay? Um, but the second question is, is, is a much more serious question, and that is that the, the text was corrupted. And, and I think that what's implied behind the question is, or, or, or uh, uh, the, the common challenge is that the text was intentionally corrupted over time. That scribes, that people who are copying the text are actually intentionally changing things, inserting things, taking things out. Basically, what they wrote back then is not what we have today. Anybody ever heard that one before? All right. Um, anybody, uh, if anybody is, is Mormon or Muslim in here, which I'm not assuming that we don't have those people, this is the primary Mormon and Muslim claim. Okay, this is what this is how those two different belief systems discount Orthodox Christianity. If if that is you, then I'm glad you're here. I would you know love to you know present the evidence to you. If 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 uh, if that's not you, then you probably have friends who who uh, are in that belief system. And if they are, this is the primary belief in in that you're addressing with them when you attempt to share the gospel with them. Okay, um, this is where they're coming from. Whether they can articulate it or not is a whole other issue. Then the third challenge is that Jesus was declared divine by the church uh, at, at the Council of Nicaea in AD 325. Anybody ever heard that one? All right. Um, anybody ever read the Da Vinci, or, yeah, the da Vinci Code by Dan Brown? Man, where have you people been? Did you see the movie? Who saw the movie? All right, that's better. Thank you. <laughs> All right, Dan Brown wrote a book. Uh, Dan Brown a guy wrote a book like 10 years ago or so where, where uh, he makes the claim in his book that at the Council of Nicaea in, in 325 that Constantinople um, uh, got all these bishops together and that they voted on the deity of Jesus. And it was like, well, I think he is or I think he's not. And that the vote that he is won, and then from then on, Jesus was a god. All right, that's the claim. Um, but... In order for us to, to, uh, to ta- so th- that's the goal for tonight, is we're going to answer these three questions. <laughs> it's going to take me about five minutes to answer those three questions. The other hour and 15 minutes, I've got to do what I'm about to do so that you'll understand the answer. Does that make sense? All right, or you're just totally lost, <laughs> either one. <laughs> okay, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to walk you through an overview. And that, man, this is a broad stroke over. Even while I was preparing this, I was just like, man, every single one of these claims that I'm making, you could spend an entire course on every single one of these dates that I give you, claims that I give you. And so this is a, this is a really deep subject, but, but in the interest of time and for the purpose of answering these questions, I just got to give you the like 30,000 foot flyover of, of this uh, topic, okay? So if you, that being said, I'm going to go pretty quick because there's a lot but if you have a question, then raise your hand. And I got to tell you that, like, um, whoever put these lights up here didn't, didn't do so for, like, this, for, the, for the communicator's benefit, right? So I'm, I'm having a little bit of trouble, especially seeing you people right here. I'm sure you're great-looking, honest, you know, uh, awesome people, but I just can't see you. So if you, if you have a question, then wave me down, and I'll stop. I definitely want this to be an interactive deal. So as we go, if you got a question, stand up. If I don't see you, just come up here and, you know, hit me or something. Um, Yeah. So I'm going to do the overview of the Old Testament uh, transmission of the text of the Old Testament, and then I'm going to do an overview of the transmission of the New Testament text, and then we'll start tackling these questions, all right? So here we go. In 430 B.C., what, well, so 
you got to understand Israel's history. In 1440-ish, the Exodus happened, right? The Exodus is when uh, Israel went down to Egypt um, under, uh, under Jacob and Joseph. They went down to Egypt and lived down there for a while and ended up being enslaved. And they said, Lord, free us. And the Lord is like, finally, okay, about 400 years later, he's like, all right, I finally heard you, right? And, and, uh, and so he, he gives, sends them Moses. Anybody ever heard of Moses before? All right, greatest Old Testament prophet. And so Moses goes down to, or he actually lives in Egypt, was born there. And, and uh, he, he goes to his people and he's like, hey, he goes to Pharaoh and says, let my people go. And Pharaoh's like, no, you've seen the prince of Egypt, right? Um, you know, um, ah, um, where Moses in the water and, and uh, yeah. That's cool. So um, that, that's the Exodus. And, and the Exodus happens. Um, and then from f- uh, while Moses is in the wilderness, he begins to transcribe the, what they call the Torah. It's the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And, and uh, what began as an oral tradition later under, um, later under the prophets and the kings, right? Um, these, the, uh, uh, the message of the Torah is written down. Okay, we don't know exactly when that started, but we know it. Obviously, it did started because it, it did start because we ended up having the books of the Torah, right? And then, as Israel's history goes, the Lord sends prophets to the nation of Israel to call them to repentance, and Israel doesn't repent, and they kill the prophets, and the prophets write down the message of the Lord to the people, and then those books begin to be transcribed. Um, and so what you end up having, having is uh, Jesus, when he comes on the scene um, about 1,400 years later, or uh, depending on where you are from Moses, 1,400 years later, he says, he says, hey, do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets, right? I have not come to abolish them, but to what? But to fulfill them. So Jesus, you, you have to understand the Jewish mind, the entire Old Testament fits under law and prophets, Okay, there's 22 books in the Hebrew Old Testament. Um, when, it, when it comes to ours, uh, the way that we delineate it out, which happened much later, we have 39 books. But in the Hebrew Old Testament, if you go look at the Tanakh, which um, the Tanakh is just an acronym. It's, it's, it stands for the Torah and the writings and the prophets. Okay, and when you look at the Tanakh, then um, uh, that, is, that is a compilation that, that uh, you know, uh, was pretty much totally complete by the time Ezra hits the scene. Um, Ezra was the um, last great uh, prophet of the Old Testament era, and he is the one who started the compilation of, the, of putting all of these books together into what we now call the Old Testament, right? The last book to be written, anybody know what the last book to be written in the Old Testament was? Nobody's brave. Anybody? Okay. <laughs> all right, it's not Malachi, all right? <laughs> um, it's actually Chronicles, right? Chronicles was the last Old Testament book to be written, and then we later separated the book of Chronicles into First Chronicles and Second Chronicles, all right? But initially, it was just one book, and uh, it was compiled as a, as a retelling of the history of Israel. It's pretty interesting, all right? So by 430, now getting into our PowerPoint, by 430, which is around the time Ezra was alive, the Old Testament was completed primarily in Hebrew and Aramaic on clay tablets, papyrus, animal skin, metal, and wax. So they basically, hey, what can we write on? Let's write on these things, and, and uh, we're transcribing um, uh, the, the message of the Tanakh, the, 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 the Hebrew scripture. The reason that Ezra is important is because he founded a scribal school called the Sopharim. 
all right, which is a derivative of a word that literally means to count or to number. So it's, if these are the scribes who are, who, who are entrusted with taking the message, uh, the written uh, uh, Old Testament message, and continuing that written tradition down through the centuries. And so from 430 until about um, 200, uh, well, from 430 until about 200, the, the, um, the Sopharim, School, which was founded by Ezra, um, restored the oral and written tradition lost during the exile. I'm, I'm, I'm skipping so much information here, but there was an exile. <laughs> All right, um, Babylon came and took Israel and 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 took him to Babylon, and they were enslaved there for about seventy years. And while they were there, there were people like Daniel and Ezekiel um, and Ezra and and uh, Nehemiah and and guys like that who are. Um, um, who are maintaining the tradition that had been passed down to them. All right, you guys tracking with me so far? All right. So um, they, when they came back from that exile, Ezra took all of the things that had been maintained over that time, and he compiled them into what we know as the 22 books of the Old Testament. All right. From 200 until about the break of the Common Era, his Sopharim school was replaced, or, or the school that became more influential was the, Gula, the Zugoth scribal schools. These guys were like highly academic. These were like their professors, right? Professors that were, that, um, were entrusted with the transcription of, of the Old Testament. From uh, around 150, what ends up happening is, is that, um, uh, well, let me back up a little bit. Anybody know, um, so Philip, of, Philip II of Macedon um, at, at about... Um, three, uh, 330, 340 uh, BC, right before Christ. So Philip of Macedon has a son, and Philip of Macedon is assassinated, so his son inherits his power, and his son, whose name is Alexander, right, goes and conquers the world. Alexander the Great. That's great. <laughs> All right, so Alexander the Great goes and conquers the world. And, and uh, one of the many things, many contributions that Alexander made was in the, it was in the area of language. And, and so the, the international language became known as uh, common Greek, right? And, and the, way, the word that they used for common, which is how we uh, describe our, uh, uh, the Greek today, is koine, right? Koine Greek. And so from that point forward, Koine Greek became the kind of lingua franca of, of the international world. It was the common language. That's what people used. And so um, because of that, around 150 in Alexandria, Egypt, which is in the northern part of Egypt, there, there was set up a Hebrew, um, not set up, it was already there. It was there from the exile from before. But there's, there was set up a Jewish um, scribal center there with, with a lot of smart dudes and a lot of people, a lot of basically like Hebrew PhD guys. And so uh, that group of men was like, hey, we need to translate the Hebrew scriptures into Koine Greek because that's the language that everybody's using. And so they did that. And when they did that, Right, a lot of the apocryphal literature that had been written around that same time got included in that Greek trans- the, the translation from Hebrew to Greek. And so, if you read the Septuagint, right, which is the translation from Hebrew to Greek, was completed around 150 BC. If you read the Septuagint, apocryphal literature is in the Septuagint, right, because of that. So this extra-biblical literature gets included in the Alexandria school of, of scribes. All right, so the Septuagint is completed around 150 B.C. along with the Apocrypha. Um, it's in, that, that becomes important, I promise. All right, 
So from the break in the Common Era until about 8300, another scribal school ra- uh, rises up, the Tanaim, and they preserve the text. All right? they, they preserve the, the text of the Old Testament. And when I say preserve, I mean they're, they're faithfully copy, making copies of this because as time goes, things are being destroyed and they're, they're basically um, not only replenishing, but they're, they're maintaining the, tr- the textual tradition of the Old Testament. Okay? Um, and then in 83, between 8300 and 8500 was the Talmudic era, all right? Um, the production of synagogue uh, rolls and private copies. And so um, w- one of the other things that happened uh, with the Babylonian exile is when, they, when the Babylons came and took Israel um, back over to Babylon, it really fractured the country. And so what used to be a country that was literally ruled by um, the city of Jerusalem and, and within the city of Jerusalem, the temple, the temple worship, began to be replaced by little temples, right? Um, because the temple was destroyed. And so we got to set up some kind of worship system so that we can worship the Lord. And what ended up happening was these little small synagogues in these different villages around the, around the country. And that's where, um, or smaller you know, uh, temples, and that's where synagogues came from. They're just a smaller version of the temple. Um, and so these, these synagogues began um, to say, hey, we need a copy of the Hebrew Scripture, so they would make a copy, and then that would become the synagogue role in that synagogue. That's, we're, we're, we're building on the, the textual tradition that was um, ultimately uh, put in place by Ezra and his Sopharim. And then if you were really rich and you wanted a copy, you could get a private copy. All right. I'll hire you, I'll hire a scribe, he'll copy this for me, and it'll be my own personal um, copy. But you had to be pretty rich because it was really expensive. Okay, from 8500 to, nine, to uh, 950 were the Masoretes. The reason the Masoretes are so important, and these, there are hundreds of these guys, but they were basically, they were continuing the Ezra tradition of, of uh, scribal transmission. And during that period, um, the, the, those scholars gave the text its, its final form. So the way that it's compiled, um, the way that, uh, uh, yeah, the way that it's compiled into what we know today, um, these guys, instead of having a book over here and a book over here and a book over here, they're, they're, they put it all together and, and we're saying, hey, this is the Old Testament text. This is also the birth of Old, Test- Old Testament textual criticism. I'll, I'll get into textual criticism later, but that's what happened for about those 450 years. Then in 8900, the Old Testament text division and versification became standard. So prior to that, you, didn't, you couldn't turn to like, you know, Amos chapter 2, verse 1, right? Amos chapter 2, verse 1 didn't exist in that form. It was just that paragraph in the book of Amos. And so while there were book divisions, um, there were not chapter divisions or verse divisions, and the Masoretes, in order to find where they wanted to teach at that point, um, it just became convenient, like, hey, let's divide this stuff into chapter and verse. All right? There's nothing inspired about the chapter and verse. So sometimes you see guys you know, trying, to, trying to mess around with, hey, what's, what's the like, center of the Bible? You know, I'm going like, to take this verse, and it's going to be the center, and somehow that's like, more important than all the other ones. And it's like... What? <laughs> you know, all right, yeah, have fun with that. You know, let me know what you find out. Um, then in 80, uh, uh, in 80, 1008, the Leningrad Codex um, comes to be. And the reason that this is important is because that is, for us today, that is the oldest manuscript of the complete Old Testament. 
So the, criti- the critical edition that we have today is based on the, the Leningrad Codex. Okay? So the, the Hebrew Bible that you read um, is based, you're basically reading the Leningrad Codex. Okay? And, and uh, you'll, we'll see, uh, obviously, why that's important here in a minute as well. Okay? Then in 1947, something interesting happened, right? This shepherd boy, this, you know, this nomad kid is, is uh, you know, tending his sheep um, on the northwest corner of, this, of the Dead Sea, right? In, in this little region called Qumran. And he, he stumbles in these caves and he realizes that, like, hey, there's some jars in these caves. Like, what in the world? So he opens these jars and, and inside of these jars are full of fra- fragmentary manuscripts, um, uh, metal manuscripts, wax stuff, and then, and then there's complete manuscripts, right? There's over a thousand texts this, that this kid stumbles on in 1947. And we're like, well, dang, that's pretty cool, right? So they start looking at this stuff, and they realize that, um, because at this point, they're like, well, we have the Leningrad Codex, but that's the oldest one that we have right now. We don't know what happened prior to 1000 A.D., and so in 1947, when this kid stumbles on this stuff, then, then people are able to say, no, these, these, are like, these are like BC-type manuscripts that we have that go back, that, that, that trace back into you know, the, the period of the couple hundred years before Christ. And so what ends up happening is now we have a standard of text that is much older, and we can compare that standard of text with what we had, which was the Masoretic text or the Leningrad Codex, okay? Well, guess what? It was the same thing, right? That's hugely significant for when, when you start talking about the, the reliability of these scribal schools to, to accurately transcribe what is written over time, right? We, you have a manuscript that's 1,000 that's years old, and you're like, well, I, I, I'm just taking this word for it. But then you discover something that goes back into really the time before Christ, much closer to the actual Ezra event, and it confirms what the Masoretic text says about the Old Testament text. Okay? I mean, that's hugely significant um, for, for us, especially in the public square, for somebody who's like, hey, copying over time, it changed a lot. No, it didn't. Right? So some, and then frankly, if, somebody, if that's the claim of someone, then the burden of proof is on them. Because this is what the evidence says. Right? Then this is cool. I just threw this in here. But in, in 1979, um, Ketef Hinnom was discovered. It's the oldest fragment of the Old Testament. So, excuse me. <coughs> um, Matt, you give me some water, dude. Thanks, man. Um, in 1979, they're rummaging around, and, and, uh, and they realized that, like, hey, this, this thing looks really old, all right? It's, it's actually three plates. They're about this tall a piece and about this wide, all right? And, and uh, plate 14, it, it, it dates back to prior to the Babylonian exile, around the time of Hosea the prophet, right? Um, uh, it's uh, the Isaiah's ministry, Right? This is really old stuff. Okay? And so we actually now have physical evidence that goes back to um, prior to the Babylonian exile, which happened in 605 BC. All right? This plate is, do the math, man, what is that, 2,600 years old? Right? And, and what, what's really cool for you know, a guy like me who's a little nerdy in this, in this whole area of, of study is that of all of the things that we could find 
Guess what Old Testament passage this is? Right? Oh, by the way, here's, here's the plate, right? Anybody want to read that for us? <laughs> right? <laughs> um, so guess what Old Testament passage this is? Numbers chapter 6. The Lord bless you and keep you. Right? The Lord cause his face to shine on you and give you peace. That's what this says. Right? It's like, man, of all the stuff we could find, we, we found this. We didn't find like, you know, and so-and-so was the son of so-and-so who was the son of so-and-so. Right? Um, I mean, this has no bearing to what I'm talking about tonight. I just think it's cool. You know what I'm saying? So hopefully you do too. If not, sorry. <clears throat> okay, so before we move on, I just want to establish that um, really this one fact is that the Dead Sea Scroll discovery, I mean, we, we, understood, the, we understood the history of the, of the transmission of the text of the different scribal schools that were in place to faithfully transmit the text of the Old Testament, but um, there was a little bit of amb- ambiguity because we didn't have a whole lot of evidence that actually proved that until 1947 when the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered, and it confirmed, thanks man, and it confirmed um, what we believe to be true, and that is that um, what was written uh, in, in the scribal school during Ezra in 430 B.C. to compile the, the, uh, the, the story of the Old Testament was faithfully transcribed over the next 2,400 years. Okay? Um, that's pretty cool. I mean, that's the point that, obviously, um, I'm wanting to make. Okay, so shifting gears. We're going to start talking about the overview of New Testament textual criticism. Actually, before we switch gears, does anybody have any questions? Send it. Yes, yes, yes. Manuscripts are either whole or they're fragmentary. So... Um, the, and I'll let you guys in on some of this work I've done in this area too. So in 2007, um, do, have you guys ever heard of a guy named Dan Wallace? All right. Um, I, I was, uh, um, he's, a, he's, a, he's a good friend of mine. He actually did my wedding, right? Um, and and uh, I worked for him for a while. And his, he has an organization called um, the Center for the Study of New Testament Manuscripts. I know, it's kind of like, seriously, Dan? Why don't you come up with something you know shorter? So he's like, "Hey, it's CSNTM, right?" So the, now it's CSNTM. Um, but uh, what what I did with Dan is, I, I, me and three other dudes flew over to Albania, where we knew that there were some manuscripts in uh, Tirana, which is the capital city of Albania. And when we got there, we realized, okay, yeah, there's 13 manuscripts here that we want to preserve through digital photography, but there's also 34 more that we had no idea about, right? It was the third most significant find of any sort of ancient manuscript in the last 100 years, behind the Dead Sea Scrolls and the cache of manuscripts they found at St. Catherine's uh, Monastery at the foothills of uh, Mount Sinai, right? And so, I mean, I was there. Right, um, I'm, I'm, they pull out the manuscripts, and I'm like, "That's really old." <laughs> I don't want to like sneeze on that, and it like goes up into dust, and I'm like, "Dang it!" Um, so we're really careful. But but what's cool is is you you start to I mean you learn about this stuff, but then you see it, and it becomes like, "Oh, that's what they're talking about," you know. And so uh, back to your question is that we dealt with we dealt with manuscripts that were whole, and we would call them such. And then we pull out a manuscript that was the entire gospel of Matthew and Mark, except it didn't have Mark 15 and 16 in it, right? So it was not whole. That entire manuscript, because it was missing part of the document, is now considered fragmentary. Does that make sense? 
So a fragment can be anything from some stuff I'll show you in a second where it's the size of your palm of your hand, or it can be a massive manuscript that's just not all of the text that's supposed to be there. Next question. Yes. How do you, could you address when they made a copy? Yep. What made it good? Yep. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The other thing is, how many of you, and I'm not trying to like get into your business or anything, but... um, I got. I have some. I'm not obsessive compulsive. Yeah, I don't have obsessive compulsive disorder, but I have some OCD like tendencies. You know what I'm saying? Like if I'm walking, if like if I'm walking earlier, I was walking on the stage and I was like, all right, I'm not going to walk on that line. You know, I'm going to step over it. I mean, there's and and it, sometimes it's kind of crazy, but but it, it also one of the byproducts of that is there's just an a, a over a, attention to detail. Right. Um, I when I see things, I see the whole, and then I also like pick it apart. Like um, it, it, it's, it's strange. <laughs> it can be strange. All right. And so um, I, I say that because um, to even qualify to be in these scribal schools, you had to show a proficiency to to pay attention to an enormous amount of detail. And so um, this was not something you just walked in and you're like, hey, I'm I'm a scribe today. I think I'll start copying, right? This was a learned discipline that was taught to you. And you had to prove that you were proficient at it before they let you start copying. So guys would be writing and they'd make a mistake, right? And guess what? Start over, right? As long as they knew they made the mistake. Now, sometimes they made a mistake and they didn't realize it. But if they knew it, then they're like, dad, gum it. Well, Well, before... Right? They didn't write on the codex. So the codex is a book, right? a, a front and a back page. They used to write on scrolls. And so, I mean, yeah, extreme caution and, 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 uh, and, and attention to detail in, in regard to that. All right? That's just a general answer, but it, it communicates the point. Anybody else? Yep. What did you say was on that plate? What oh, Numbers chapter 6. Uh, I, I believe it's 4 to 6. Somebody want to check me on that? It's the end of number 6. All right. She'll, uh, or 24 to 26. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Numbers chapter 6, verses 24 to 26. I knew there was a 4 and 6 in there somewhere. All right, another question. Anybody? Jerusalem. Yep. Yeah, you can go on Google. Like, type in, uh, what is it called? Ketef um, Hinnom. Yeah. The Hinnom Valley. Anybody ever been to Jerusalem? All right, handful of people. The Hinnom Valley um, is, uh, well, I'll just leave it up right now since we're talking about it. The Valley of Hinnom um, is also, back in the day, Jesus called it Gehenna, right? Um, and it was, in the, in the old days, it was their trash pit. <clears throat> and so stuff, get, stuff got thrown away, right? And uh, this, this uh, fragment was found uh, in, you know, in the trash. <laughs> I mean, obviously, they dug down to, to that point and, and dug it up. Um, through an archaeological find, but yeah, it was found. You can you can search Katef Hinnom and it'll it'll tell you about it. Wikipedia it. <laughs> I know it's really reliable, right? <clears throat> Any other questions? Yep, two more. You in the back, and then Red. Yep. Yes, 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 there are. And I'll get to that in about 45 minutes. So hang tight. And then you had one? So if this is off base or not the right place, fine. Send it. So when I hear, um, don't mean to say anybody, so 
Yep. Yeah, totally. So um, there, the, there are some distinctions between um, what, what's copied here and, and, and some of the cults that uh, exist today. Um, context has a lot to do with it, okay? Understanding the historical context behind it. And so what you're talking about is you're talking about the... Hit, look, the Hebrew people are innately tied to their scripture, it's not, it's not a book they read. It's who they are. D- does that make sense? I mean, it li- literally is their history. And so um, the, what I'm trying to communicate tonight is not necessarily like, you know, the differences between copying to, with other belief systems. What I'm trying to communicate tonight is that whatever happened back then, that th- whatever they wrote down then, we can... We, we have a, a good amount of evidence that what they wrote down then is what we have now, right? Um, now, somebody, an extreme skeptic, is going to be like, well, how do we know that they didn't just make it all up when they wrote it down, right? Well, then context comes into play. And, and all sorts of arguments about, about uh, oral transmission, about doing that inside community, it's extremely difficult to pull over a fast one on an entire nation, you know what I'm saying? It, uh, it, and frankly, what I would argue is it's impossible to do that. And, and if you'll read um, on the historical gap, I talk about the role of tradence or someone who is responsible for uh, accurately transmitting an oral tradition. I talk about the importance of tradence for the, for the oral tradition of, of primitive Christianity in that 15-year historical gap. But that came out of Judaism, which had a very strong oral tradition. Now, I mean, in fact, what Jesus ends up doing in, in Matthew, uh, well, in all the Gospels, is when Jesus hits the scene, he's dealing with people who had been given the law but the law had been watered down over time because of because people began to add things to it um, through their oral teaching that they taught the people around them and so when jesus came and said you have heard that it was said don't murder but i tell you anybody who's angry with his brother and his heart has committed murder already is guilty of murder liable to the court liable to the council given over to the judge Right, and so what Jesus is doing is he's not he's not rewriting the law, he's putting the law back where it belongs, and so um, I'm making this point because what had been uh, what had been written was the same, but there was this really strong oral tradition that came alongside of the written Torah and law and prophets, and and then was when, by the time Jesus hit the scene was on the same authoritative level as the written Torah. Does that make sense? Right, and so, I mean, to make the claim that they just made this up, and it's it's like you said, it's really dismissive. Like, yeah, right. There, when you when you begin to dig into who is, who is this people out of which this story is coming, was there a strong um, was is there strong evidence to show that that there are uh, that the that a message could be faithfully transcribed over time? And the answer is overwhelmingly what? Yes, there is. And so, again, the burden of proof is on the one who's bringing up the, the challenge that, that, frankly, when it comes down to it, it it's just not, it's, it, it's, it's, in my opinion, it's asinine, all right? And I don't mean that, like, I don't mean that too strongly, but I, I think it is, right? You're, 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 again, going back to last week, what is truth? Someone is starting with a baseline assumption that this cannot be true. And so they come to it with a challenge to say, 
that's hocus pocus, and they don't really evaluate the evidence. Okay? I hope that sort of satisfied your question. If not, see me afterwards. Anybody else before we move on? Good, because we've got to move on. <clears throat> All right, New Testament. By AD 70, so Jesus is born between 6 and 4 B.C., and then he dies between 30 and 33 A.D., around there, right? And so we'll just go with 4 and 33. So by AD 70, some, you know, some 40 years uh, you know, after, after the uh, resurrection of Jesus, the entire New Testament minus Revelation, and somebody can make an argument for John as well, was compiled. What, what happened in AD 70 that was so important? Anybody know? Yeah. Freaking Titus, the Roman general, came in and said, Bam! I'm knocking Jerusalem to the ground. And that's what he did. And so um, is, is all of the Jewish literature written post-AD 70 um, has, has, a lot of, uh, has a lot of overtones to talk about um, this, this massive cataclysmic event that was the Romans burning Jerusalem to the ground. That's like, man, we... Yeah, sometimes I read some of these historical events and I'm just like, man, I, how, do you even, how do you even come up with a parallel um, to that, to today. It would be like somebody, it would be like Al-Qaeda coming and like setting off nuclear bombs in L.A., Chicago, um, Seattle, um, Miami, New York City, Dallas, all at the same time, right? It's, it's pretty much like a, I mean, the nation's not gone, but it pretty much is, right? That's, the, that's, that's Jerusalem being destroyed and burned to the ground. And, and, and namely, that the temple is destroyed. All right? Again, this is not just like, hey, let's go to the temple and, and, and worship just because we feel like it on a Saturday, right? on the Sabbath. This, the temple is, is, is intimately tied to the identity of the nation. Right? So, 70, it's burned to the ground. So the New Testament is written in uncial letters, using papyrus and parchment. So what is papyrus and parchment? Papyrus is a plant. A plant that grows in, in northern, northern Egypt along the Nile. <clears throat> strips of fiber from the plant would be peeled away and laid vertically side by side, and then strips would be placed horizontally across the vertical fibers, kind of like this, right? Um, it's, they're perpendicular to one another. And so you'd lay the horizontal ones and then, and then vertical, and, it, and it, you press it together um, that combined the fibers into, into this, this sort of paper. And, and papyrus was used. It had been used for millennia. It's, but the problem is it's not very strong. And, if it's, and unless it's in a dry area, or, uh, yeah, if it gets into a dry area, then, then it gets really arid and it breaks up. It's real brittle. Okay? Has anybody ever worked with papyrus before? All right. Well, some t- yeah. If you ever see some papyrus, then play around with it. You'll see what I'm talking about. The second one is parchment or vellum, which is basically animal skin. Okay, this is why, this is why people who are, if you're really rich and you're like, hey, um, I want a copy of that, then you had to kill your flock. <laughs> you had to kill your flock to make a, a copy of this. And so what would end up happening is, is uh, it's a lot more durable than papyrus, obviously because it's animal skin, because they would kill a goat or a sheep or whatever. And they would, typically a younger one, because as you get older, what happens to your skin? Any old people in here? You know what I'm saying? All right. 
<laughs> so as you get older, your skin stretches, right? And so they, they, the, the, uh, the younger, the better, because the skin is tight, and they would kill the animal, um, flatten it out, um, scrape it down to a, a workable you know, size, cut it out, and then um, treat it with like a chalk-type substance, and then write, and bam, there you go. You got your manuscript, all right? So that's, that's parchment. Um, uh, I, I saw a manuscript in, in, uh, in Albania um, called, the, y'all ready for this, <clears throat> Codex Purpurius Baratinus. Yeah, there you go. Um, it's like a sneezed or something. But, but uh, it's vellum, so it's, par- or it's parchment. So they, uh, it was one of, a lot of people think that it was, it was if it wasn't uh, uh, ordered by Constantine, it was ordered by another Roman emperor. And, and this, this manuscript was dipped into this purple dye, and then they wrote in silver ink, on the manuscript until they got to the name of God and then they put the silver ink pen down and picked up a gold ink and wrote the name of God and then picked the silver back up and kept writing, right? Well, now it looks brown because that was 1,700 years ago, you know? And we think stuff in the Smithsonian is old, right? Um, This is some old stuff. But parchment, the reason we have that manuscript now and it's in fairly good condition is because it's on animal skin. It's extremely durable, right? The problem is they didn't know that like um, the lead and like silver and, and gold like basically eats through the page. So bad on them, right? <clears throat> anyway, it was written in uncials. So uncials are all capital letters. It's like, it's, it's like you writing the cow jumped over the moon in all caps with no word divisions on your computer. Okay, um, that's, that's, those are uncial letters. So there's no word breaks. There's no punctuation, none of that. So they, they, they carefully produce letters. They're, they're mostly written in scriptio continua, which is Latin for continuous script, um, without word breaks or punctuation. I just said that. Um, other than abbreviations, and the abbreviations are uh, the nomina sacra. It's the name of God. And so they would abbreviate God's name um, out of deference or out of respect for the name of God. Okay, I'll show you an example here in a minute. A palimpsest. Um, out of the 250 uncial manuscripts that we have in existence today, 52 of those manuscripts are, are palimpsests. What would end up happening is somebody would say would, would have a copy of the Gospel of Mark. And this also goes to show how common the copies were. Because Home Slice would take his copy of the Gospel of Mark and scrape the biblical text off of the animal skin and then use the vellum over for something else. Okay? So, like, I'm going to sell Farmer Bob my cow, right? But all I got is Mark. <laughs> so to give him a receipt, I'm going to take a page out of Mark, scrape it down, and then write a receipt and hand it to Bob, right? That's called a palimpsest. The, the way that we know is that there's some indicators. If you're looking at it with the naked eye, it's sometimes really hard to see. But there's some indicators that show that, that hey, there's, it looks like there's some writing underneath the writing, underneath the scraped um, part of... Of the uh, of the parchment. This is a Codex or a, a Gregory Allen manuscript number eleven seventy nine. Okay, you guys see that? So there's the there's the horizontal writing like we write today. But then if you look really closely, there's these vertical lines. Do y'all see that? The vertical lines is the biblical text. The the horizontal stuff is the text that had or the biblical text had been scraped off, and the horizontal lines is the text that's written over that. I mean, a lot of times these are like letters, personal letters, other books, stuff like that, that people are, are writing. But seriously, sometimes it's like a receipt for a cow. It's really odd, okay? But that, this is a, a, a palimpsest. That, um, some of the, uh, uh, all uncial manuscripts are early, but some, um, some of them, about 52 of them are palimpsests. 
around 90 AD, the church fathers, starting with Clement, Ignatius, Polycarp, um, Justin Martyr, all these dudes, they start writing. Well, guess what they do? So by the time 90 hits, um, Christianity is, is, uh, is a pretty established belief system. Okay, and, and it has leaders, there's bishops, there's elders, um, and these guys are the leaders of the church. And so part of their responsibility is to teach Orthodox Christian doctrine to the church, just like we have elders at Watermark, and they're responsible for the teaching that goes out to you guys. All right, same, same kind of deal. We've been doing the same thing for 2,000 years. And so these guys, what they would do is take quotations from the New Testament copy them onto their writings, and then write a commentary section underneath that quotation. Y'all track with me? So like, you know, Jesus comes and says, uh, in in Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, it says, um, Jesus came to them, and he began to preach to them, saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near to you. Right? So they would say, they would write that down, which is a direct quotation from Matthew 4, 17, and then they would talk about, what is Jesus calling us to repent? What's the kingdom of heaven? Why has it come near to us? And they would begin to answer all that stuff. Guess how many church father quotations there are in existence today? And this is a, like, this is a pretty uh, conservative count. Anybody got an idea? How many quotations the church fathers have? Over a million. What? A million. First of all, what, what immediately comes to mind? Who counted that stuff? You know what I'm saying? Like one, two, three. I mean, that's, yeah. But yeah, there, there's actually an institute in Germany and they count this stuff. So um, that's what they do. And praise the Lord for them, right? Um, but there's, did you know that you could take away all Greek New Testament manuscripts? You could take all, away all, all uh, Latin manuscripts. You could take away all of, of uh, the Slavonic manuscripts, the Gothic manuscripts, all of, all of the other ones that are out there today and just have the church father quotations, and you would be able to reproduce the New Testament multiple times over. We have a lot of evidence, okay, um, as, as you'll see. Around 100 AD, the codex form of the book is invented, probably because the early church um, couldn't afford scrolls. So they're like, we've got to figure this out. Instead of a scroll, let's cut it in half and bind it together, and bam, you get a book. That's what the Codex is. So those of you all in school or those of you all that love books, you can think the early church for the form that you read in now, okay? Except, dadgummit, they didn't know what a Kindle was. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? <clears throat> so, yeah, we, we have uh, progressed or digressed, depending on your view of that. <clears throat> Between 50 and 140, the Didache was written. The Didache was, was an early church handbook. It's kind of like the church said, hey, how are we doing church? How are we incorporating people into the body? How are we performing baptism? How are we doing all of these things? And so they wrote that down, and that book is the Didache. All right? It's like a handbook for Christianity. So as, as early as 50, although the, the, the ones that we have um, date back to around 140. So middle of the second century. Then, in 8100, is the oldest known manuscript that, that we have today. And, yeah, there's, there is potential for... Um, there, there some, some manuscript fragments have been discovered. They have not been published yet. But some manuscript uh, fragments have been discovered of, of, of uh, Luke and Mark. And they're, they're testing them right now to see how old they are. But the guess is, is that they both go into the first century 
which is crazy, which would beat out this one I'm about to show you, which right now is the oldest manuscript um, that we have, or the oldest extant manuscript. It's called P52. This is it right here. And it's, it's not like a, a progression of like P-51, like the old, you know, World War II fighter. This is an actual, you know, manuscript. It's about the size of your palm, okay? Um, this is John um, chapter 18, verses 31 and 32, I believe. And on the opposite side is verses 37 and 38. And it's the passage where Pilate is interviewing Jesus and, and Pilate says, what is truth, right? Which we talked about last week. And so um, this, is, this was actually in the John Rylands um, Library in Manchester, England. And, and in 1944, there was a guy rummaging around in, in, in the basement of the Rylands you know, Library looking at old documents, and he found this and was like, this looks really old. So he sent it off, he sent it off to three, independent, independent of one another, he sent it off to three different papyrologists to date it. And they, all three of them said, this thing should not be dated any later than 150 AD, middle of the second century. One of them said, it's probably closer to AD 125. And, and, and the third one was like, it, it, it might go into the 90s of the first century, right? Well, guess what? Um, this is the gospel of John, okay? Um, up until that point, the gospel of John in academic circles didn't really hold a lot of weight. Why? Because it had such a high Christology. How does, John, how does the book of John start? In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And what? The Word was God. An explicit claim to deity that links Jesus of Nazareth to Yahweh. That he is the incarnate Word of God. John 1.14, and the word who created, nothing um, was created apart from him, that the eternal word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw him, we saw his glory. Glory is the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. The gospel of John, right? Um, possibly this proves into the, the first century. Right. Hey, you can presume all you want, right? But um, an ounce of evidence is worth a pound of presumption. You know what I'm saying? 80, 120 to 130. And I'm going to start getting into some technical stuff. I need to hurry because we only have 30 minutes left. But um, from 80, 120 to 130. So what happens is the formation of the Alexandrian and the Western text types. Now, you have to understand the history of the situation in order to understand what's going on with these different text types. So the early church begins copying these things. These documents are extremely important to the early church. Like, people are dying for them, okay? And so, um, which is one of the reasons when you start looking at the canonicity issues of how did, which books ended up in the Bible, um, that process really played itself out through persecution because the church was like, these are the texts that we're willing to die for. Gospel of Thomas, Gospel of Peter, Gospel of Mary. Hey, whatever. I'm not dying for that. I'm going to die for Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Okay? And, and I don't have time to go on that. That's a whole other class, which let's have it sometime. You know what I'm saying? But, but uh, for now, we've we got to talk about this. So under persecution, the church scatters. It's a diaspora, or it's a scattering. And, and they go to these different... Um, the church begins to plant in different areas. Antioch, Alexandria, Rome, right? Uh, Asia Minor, Ephesus, all, all of the seven churches that you see in, in, uh, in Revelation. And, and out of these places, they begin to set up their own type of scribal schools there, 
right? So the Alexandrian school um, uh, produces Alexandrian-type manuscripts. And so probably the earliest manuscripts from the Alexandrian text type originated in Jerusalem because they were the earliest and most reliable ones. They get sent to Alexandria to, to, to be planted there with, with, the, with the scribal school that has, uh, was being produced at the time. And what ends up happening is just like, I mean, you know, I grew up in Arkansas, right? Um, and so I, man, I, in fact, I was watching a video. It wasn't, it was probably a year and a half ago or so, but a buddy of mine showed me something from me speaking in high school and I had a pretty thick draw, you know? Uh, I mean, it was like, hey, y'all, let's, you know, let's, <laughs> let's go get a burger. Um, and and uh, since then, since, since, uh, uh, since living in Arkansas, I, I moved to Dallas and went to graduate school, and then I uh, joined the Army. And, and then while in the Army, I was in, in Georgia, which is also a thick draw, but, but uh, lived in Colorado for, for a while and lived overseas. And, you know, basically, my accent was tapered off a little bit. Um, some of y'all might hear a little bit of it, which is fine by me, you know, go hogs. But, but, uh, but at the end of the day, it's like, hey, the, but what I'm saying is, 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 is I, as I relocated, then I began to morph into that type of culture that I'm in. Okay, now there's massive holes in making comparisons to that. I'm saying that for a point. When you take a tran- when you take a text and bring it down here, and then take another text of the exact same kind and send it up to Constantinople in, in Turkey, or in, which is now Istanbul, or when you take another text of the exact same time and send it to Rome, and you begin to copy those things over time, those texts are going to take on characteristics of the place that you're in. Does that make sense? All right, are y'all tracking with me? So when I say a text type, I'm talking about a manuscript that was produced out of a scribal school in a certain place. All right, so and, and the Alexandrian texts are characterized by careful copying, shorter, more difficult readings. Although the type is associated with Alexandria, northern Egypt, its most important manuscripts did not originate there, um, uh, such as uh, Sinaiticus, Vaticanus, Alexandrinus, um, all of the, the the manuscripts that are you know the earliest and the most important. Um, but they were copied from there. The Western text is totally characterized by scribal liberty. Um, words, entire clauses, entire like chapters are totally changed for emphasis. So we might say the cow jumped over the moon. That was the way it was originally written. The, the Alexandrian text might say the cow jumped over a moon. It's just a barely, there's just a slight change, but it's the same message. The Western text is going to say something like, you know, the glorious bovine leaped over the lunar, you know, uh, sphere in, in the sky and landed gracefully on the other side. It's like, uh, is the same message being communicated? Yes. Did they take crazy liberty with how they said it? Yes. Are, are y'all tracking with me? So the, if you read the Western text and compare it to the, Alex, uh, to the Alexandrian text, they are communicating the same thing. There are major differences between these. Okay? The message is the same. The word, words, entire clauses are changed. Um, and Codex Bezai, or D, is, is the best example of this. I mean, Codex Bezai has hardly any uh, value for us when we're doing New Testament textual criticism because it's been changed so much. Okay? 
Between 200 and 250 was a formation of the Caesarean text type. What that is, is that it, it probably, uh, the Caesarean text type was probably some of those manuscripts that moved to Alexandria, and then the, the uh, church father Origen picked up a cache of manuscripts and moved to Caesarea Maritima on the Mediterranean Sea in, uh, in western Israel, right? And he set up another scribal school there that really is um, an, a, a mixture of the Alexandrian text type and the western text type because he got some manuscripts from Alexandria and he got some from Italy or Gaul or, or where, wherever he got them from. And, and so those two families of texts blend together and form the Caesarean text type. Okay? Um, the, the, uh, Theta, family one, family 13, uh, uh, 1709, which is a minuscule manuscript that I photographed in, in Albania. It fits into the, Alexand- or the Caesarean text type. All, right? um, all of the Caesarean texts are gospels. Okay? None of the pastoral epistles or or uh, Paul, letters of Paul, or uh, um, uh, general epistles, Revelation, none of them fit into the Caesarean text type. And then from 8300 to 330 was the formation of the Byzantine, or the establishment of the Byzantine text type. The Byzantine text type is, is also called the majority text. It is by far the most produced uh, New Testament manuscript. It set up camp in Byzantium, which was later uh, Constantinople, which... Uh, or uh, maybe it was the other way around. It was Constantinople and then Byzantium and then um, uh, and then uh, Istanbul, right in 1453. And so uh, it's set up in Byzantium, and which is where it's got it, where it got its name. And and it's it's basically the thing that de- that is the demarcation for the Byzantine text type is that is a text that is meant to be read in public, right? So if you have the cow jumped over the moon or something like that then in order to read it in public, in order for things to be smoother off the tongue, then I might change some words or clause here and there so it's not so wooden when I read it. Does that make sense? Because now you're dealing with the church who's needing, needing to be edified by these texts and nobody can read. So we need you to read it to us. What's going on here? And so um, this uh, Byzantine, uh, when I said nobody can read, that's obviously hyperbole, right? Um, to the uneducated uh, people, they needed it to be read in, in a, a church setting um, to be edified uh, you know, for the purpose of godliness, right? So the, the Greek Orthodox Church, they went to great lengths to ensure the preservation of, of those manuscripts over the centuries. Um, like I said, it's characterized by smoother, longer readings that are meant to be read out loud to an audience. Okay, so as these manuscripts were being copied, the essential message of, of, uh, um, of the New Testament is faithfully being transcribed. There are uh, variations of it depending on what scribal school you're talking about. Okay, And I'll, I'll get to why that's important here in a second. 8313, Constantine recognizes Christianity. Um, he, he didn't make it legal, right? Actually, uh, it was either one or two emperors after him that actually made it the official religion of Rome. Constantine was just the first one to say, stop killing Christians, okay? It became illegal to persecute Christians. Well, guess what that did to the early church? It allowed, us, it allowed a church that had been suppressed for centuries to come out in the open, Right? Well, guess what they did as soon as Constantine um, you, you know, recognized Christianity? Well, one, they encouraged him, hey, copy our, our text for us. Um, another thing they did was they began to have ecumenical councils. Hey, hey what are the things, what are the things that, that we have believed um, over the last 300 years that, that were passed down to us from the church fathers, who was passed down to them by the apostles, who was passed down to them by who? Jesus. 
Right? There's a faithful transcribing of the message, the gospel message, all the way down to AD 313 when Constantine lifts this persecution off of the church. All right? Lectionaries begin to be used. Um, the Codices Sinaiticus and Vaticanus um, were, were copied. And we still have those. Sinaiticus was found where? Sinai, right? Um, St. Catherine's Monastery in Sinai. There's a really cool story behind that. But guess where Vaticanus is? The Vatican. Boy, everybody gets an A. All right, so here's Codex Sinaiticus, all right? That's Matthew 28, Codex Sinaiticus. In case you can't see that, there it is, okay? So, yep, send it. You're right now, you're answering the question number two, the text. I'm not answering any question right now. I'm just talking through, like, I'm just talking through the transmission of the text. I'll get to the, at the end of the presentation, I'll go through each one of the questions and give a very specific answer based on what I'm talking about right now. Does that make sense? I guess so. (laughs) I mean, you'll have to trust me. Yeah, I hear you. I hear you. You'll see. If it's still confusing, then let me know then. All right? Um, So what do we immediately know about this? One, it's all what? Well, (laughs) it's Greek to me. Well, yes, of course it's Greek. All right? What else do we see about it? It's all capital letters, right? That means it's unsure. That means it's unsure writings. If you, you know, if you... uh, in, in 800, I'll get to this in a second, um, there's, a, there's a time when, when uh, small lowercase letters replaced capital letters as, as the standard Greek writing, right? So as soon as we see all capital letters, we immediately know that this is an earlier manuscript, okay? Um, that's just standard, you know, uh, uh, um, studying texts. You, al- you also can see some of the letters have lines above them. Right? The lines above them are the nomen sacrum, or the name of God. That's the abbreviation. Okay? But there's no word break, there's no word division, and it's all written in scriptio continua with capital letters. All right? This is the Great Commission um, in Matthew chapter 20. It's the end of Matthew. All right? This also, that's the beginning of John, right? You can see in our, well, you guys can't see, but it basically says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, right? Uh, uh, the, 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 um, well, it goes on from there, okay? But you, can, you see what I'm saying, that it's, that it's there. Um, uh, this is by far the, one of, this is an Alexandrian text. It's very early and, and uh, is an extremely, extremely important manuscript for us. All right, here's a lectionary. This is uh, Codex Boerniernus. And I know that's a mouthful, right? But this also is unchill text, which means it's early. And it has, you can see there's two lines. It's an interlinear, right? There's a diglot. So, so it's uh, Paulos, doulos, Jesu Christu, Kletos, apostolos. Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle. Romans chapter 1, right? Um, and above that is Latin. Because the priest who couldn't read Greek could read Latin. And he would read it to the congregation. This is a lectionary. Do you, do you see what I'm saying? Okay, these are examples of what I'm talking to you about. Um, in AD 383, Jerome visits the, uh, revises the old Latin version of the four Gospels, and later, uh, it's later called the Vulgate, or the, or the common tongue of, of, of Latin. In AD 800, minuscule letters replace the uncial in standard Greek writing. In AD 1400, paper replaces parchment as the primary material for writing. Does anybody know who and when uh, or where paper was invented and when it was invented? Anybody? First century, isn't that crazy? First century by our friends the Chinese. 
right? Um, paper was invented in China in the first century, which is crazy. It took 1,400 years to get to Europe, you know? But, I mean, whatever. <clears throat> That's a long road, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> All right, honey, I'll see you later in 1,400 years. Um, so in 1440, probably the most significant thing um, at, to, to that date, and maybe ever, happened, right? Johann Gutenberg in, invented the printing press. And so what used to be, what used to t- take massive toil to produce and was only really limited to people who had the means to produce it was now available to the masses, right? And this birthed, I mean, it birthed the, it birthed the, the Catholic Reformation. I mean, it, it birthed the, in many ways, birthed the Renaissance. I mean, there this massive push for learning among the masses, okay? Um, huge historical event. And all that guy's thinking is, I oh, guess I'll print this, you know? Um, man, it's the small things. You know what I'm saying? Do what? <laughs> yeah, no. Al Gore didn't invent the printing press. Thanks for that, though. <laughs> In AD 1453, something really significant happened. All right, the Muslims invaded and conquered Byzantium and renamed it Istanbul. All right. The reason this is important is because the, the Byzantine text type was housed in Byzantium. And so there's a massive cache of manuscripts there. And so what ended up happening is these priests who are seeing the Muslims come, Rah! they're like, Dad gummit, man, I don't want to die, um, take, the, uh, take these manuscripts and they take off to Eastern Europe. And they stop along the way in these different fortresses or, ch- or chapels or, you know, churches and, that'll house them. And they begin to put the manuscripts in these places. And so for the very first time, you see, you see Greek manuscripts get pushed into Eastern Europe. All right? So that happened in 1453. Guess what happened in 1458? Five years later, the, U- the University of Paris offered ancient Greek for the very first time as a course. Why? Because now they had manuscripts to deal with, okay? Man, this was a huge, I mean, that, that historical act alone, the, the conquering of, of Byzantium, is one of the major driving factors that birthed the, 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 it definitely birthed the Catholic Reformation. And for sure, because it allowed Martin Luther to have a text to translate, right? Um, and, and secondly, it, it, it was hugely influential to birth the Renaissance, right? All of these things are... are, are uh, um, Intertwined. It's all, it's all the same story, right? In 1516, a guy named Desiderius Erasmus published the first Greek New Testament Latin diglot, um, uh, like we saw earlier, um, primarily from a few late Byzantine manuscripts. So all that he had available to him. It, was, it went through five different editions. There was only a handful of manuscripts, and they were Byzantine, which, which means they probably were not the most accurate. And so based on Erasmus's Greek-Latin um, text was, was a text that we call the Textus Receptus. Anybody love the King James Bible in here? All right. Um, and, and, and based on that, uh, based on the Texas Receptus, in, 15, or in 1611, the King James Version of the English Bible was produced, all right, based on Erasmus's fifth edition of his, of his Greek-Latin diglot, okay, because he had Byzantine manuscripts to copy the, the, uh, the text of the New Testament in. In 1908... Uh, a guy named Caspar Rene Gregory began to assign official numbers to these manuscripts, um, a system that was, that was later developed by a guy named Kurt Aland, and, and these, they became known as the Gregory Aland numbers. So, and then in 1997, uh, 1994, 
the second edition of the, y'all ready for this? Kurzgefasste Liste. All right, so it's a German word that just means the abridged list. It's a small book. It's not that small, but it's a pretty small book. It's that catalogs all of the known New Testament manuscripts that, are, that we know of today. All right, there's about, in the Kurzgefasste Liste, there's probably 57-ish, 100 uh, Greek New Testament manuscripts. It says what they are, where they are, the type of manuscript they are, how old they are, all that stuff. And it just, I mean, it's line by line. You know, there's Codex Sinaiticus, there's Codex Vaticanus, there's Codex Alexandrinus, there's Codex Boerniernus, I mean, all of, there's Codex, uh, and, on, and so on and so forth. And you know, we know where they are, um, and, which is pretty significant for us when we're, when we're compiling these things. Um, so by 2007, there were 5,752 total uh, manuscripts that, are, that have not been destroyed or lost, Greek New Testament manuscripts. On papyri, there's 118 of them. Those are all really old, okay? Um, uh, of uncials, so the scriptio continua, the, the uh, all caps, there's 318 of those. The minuscules, um, are, there's 2,880 of those, and lectionaries, there's 2,436. Those are all Greek Koine Greek New Testament manuscripts. There's about 6,000, all right? It's about 5,700-ish. That number keeps growing because we keep finding them. They're in the trash, you know? Um, in Latin manuscripts, there's about 10,000 of those. because So it was written originally in Koine Greek, but then it gets translated into these other languages, right? So about 10,000 Latin manuscripts. There's about 10 to 15,000 um, manuscripts of, of translations into other languages, all right? Like I mentioned earlier, Gothic, uh, Slavonic, um, uh, those types of languages. And then a million church father quotations, right? So let's compare this to other ancient documents. Anybody know of the other ancient documents who holds the trophy for the most? That's right, Homer does, right? There's about 600 manuscripts that we have of Homer's works, all right? Um, Other ancient authors, Livy, the oldest we have of his is 4th century. Number of surviving, 27, right? All right, sweet, good. Tacitus, 4th, 9th century, 3. Suetonius, 9th century, 200. Hey, coming strong. Thucydides, 1st century, 20. Herodotus, 1st century, 75. Uh, that's not on here, but Xenophon, right? Another, another uh, uh, Greek uh, historian. His work, the, the, the oldest uh, manuscript that we have of his was found in the... In the it's 18 centuries older than when it was written. Like, right? That's like us saying the oldest New Testament manuscript we have was written around the same time that the Wright brothers invented the airplane. All right? Here's the deal. If you stack all of these other ancient, vers- others, other ancient authors on top of each other, guess how high it would go of what the extant manuscripts that we have today? It's about four feet high. Hey, good for you, man. If you stack all of the New Testament manuscripts we have on top of each other, guess how high it goes? Somebody, somebody guess. Come on. Ten stories. That's what I'm talking about. She came strong, but she's wrong. <laughs> <laughs> but dadgummit, she didn't doubt, and that's what I love. <laughs> it's over a mile high, right? A mile. What's, what's, what is it, 5,280 feet? Right Over that. What? Right? We, uh, uh, some people have said that, that, that uh, classical um, uh, scholars deal with a dearth of, of, of evidence, and, and, uh, and, and good for them. You know, We have an embarrassment of riches when it comes to the New Testament. 
Right? And, and the reason that's important is because when you talk about the corruption of the New Testament, if you just have one manuscript and you compare it to another one, then it may differ in some areas, but you're not really sure how reliable those are because there's only one thing to compare it to. The more evidence you have to compare it to, the closer you get to the original. We have 6,000 Greek manuscripts, 6,000 to collate together and, 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 and to uh, have the, the critical edition that we base all of our English translations on today, right? The oldest being in, you know, at, at, at the turn of the first century, um, and, and those two that I mentioned earlier, maybe even into the first century. I mean, there is by far, there is no other well-attested ancient document that's, that even comes close to the New Testament, Okay, so, so for the skeptic, it's like, oh, I don't know, you know. I'm like, well, look, the only options are either we toss out everything we know from antiquity or we accept that this is a reliably transcri- transcribed document. Those are the only two options, right? I'm not willing to nihilistically say that we can know nothing from antiquity. That's just, again, that's just a, a nonsense, literally, Man, I only got eight minutes. What in the world? All right, here we go. Back to um, brother. What's your name? Sean. Sean. That's what I'm talking about. Back to your questions. All right. What about the translations? So somebody's like, ah, oh, it's been translated so many times. Well, we really have two different editions. We have the Biblia Hebraica Stuttgartensia, which is the Hebrew critical text based on the Leningrad Codex that was confirmed by the Dead Sea Scrolls, right? And so our English translations are based on that critical, uh, that critical edition. And then we have the New Testament, which is based on either United Bible Society's fourth edition, excuse me, or the Nestle Island 28th edition that just came out a couple of years ago, okay? What those are, are those, those are Greek editions that are based on all of those different manuscripts that I was telling you about. Not, not all of them. Some of them have not been collated and brought into the critical edition. But uh, we have a collated work of multiple different manuscripts where someone says, hey, um, you know, in this, uh, in this uh, variant, which we'll talk about variants in a second. And these, this variant, we have to make a call on what we think is original. Is it A or B, right? And so they make a call, and they say, we think it's A. Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Um, you, you know, uh, because of the blood of sacrifice, I'm paraphrasing, because of Christ, is it let us have peace with God, or we have peace with God? One is indicative, one is subjunctive. We don't know. Some manuscripts, it's subjunctive, some, we, some is, is indicative. We don't know. But it's not like, is it subjunctive or indicative, or is it Fred sat on a stool? No, we we have the original. It's just either A or B. We don't know. Okay? It's not something totally different. And so we have these critical editions, and then every single, well, every English translation you should read is based on that critical edition. So when someone says it's been translated so many times, the answer to that is, yeah, but that doesn't have anything to do with the critical editions that the translation is based on, right? Uh, I mean, so the, the, whole tra- the whole it's been translated so much, it doesn't matter. It, it, what matters is the source material uh, based on, uh, uh, upon which the translation is based. Does that make sense? The, t- the translations are typically done in committees, so it's not just one dude out there making a call. It's a bunch of really godly people who are really way smarter than all of us put together, and, and they, make, they make really g- uh, g- great calls on these things, right? Um, it's translated for various audiences or purposes. 
So the message Bible, Eugene Peterson is like, hey, I'm going I'm to do this for somebody who's never read the Bible before. Right? Now, that's a paraphrase. It's not, his is a paraphrase. It's not really a translation. But he's paraphrasing it. And so, I mean, I wouldn't tell a guy, hey, go study that. I would say, you know, read it for your own edification, but don't study it because it's not really the text. The text is something like the New English Translation or the New American Standard Bible or the New International Version. That is the text. It's an accurate translation into English. Right? And then it, it has to do with style, not reliability. And so when I said earlier that, that people are like, what's well, been translated so much? No, you don't understand the process. You don't understand the critical edition upon which these translations are based. All right? And, and, and that has been the same the whole time. All right. Is the text corrupted? I've got five minutes. <clears throat> Is the text corrupted? There's 140,000 words in the Greek New Testament. Guess how many variants there are? Now, when I say variant, I mean that's any place that one manuscript differs from another. Just tracking? All right. Guess how many there are? Bam! Who's heard this before? Oh. <laughs> Man, I forgot I gave you the answers. Dang it. Good. Yeah, outstanding. You know, you, you get the gold star, right? <laughs> All right, yeah, there's 400 textual variants in the Greek New Testament. So somebody's going to be like, whoa, hey, that's totally corrupt. You know, for every word, there's approximately two and a half to three Variants for every single word in the New Testament. Why is there 400,000? We have 6,000 manuscripps, right? And, and, and 99% of the textual variants, they make no difference at all. It's a spelling change. It's, it's, a, it's a substitution, like a, um, instead, of, instead of Jesus, uh, a scribe substitutes, takes Jesus out and puts Lord in. Right? Um, probably 75% of the 99% is something called a movable new. All right? um, so when we speak in English, we say um, a house and apple. Right? Um, depending on whether the, the word that follows the conjunction, if it starts with a consonant, then we leave the conjunction alone. It's just a, right? Um, uh, or, or the article, I mean. We leave the article alone. It's just a. If, it starts with an, if, it, if the next word starts with a vowel, what do we do with the article? We put an N on it, an apple, a house, right? And, and so it's, this, it's not the exact same, but it's a similar thing in Greek. So when the scriptio continua broke off and they started doing word divisions, then it mattered immensely the end of one word could easily bleed into another one. And so they moved the new. Well, when that happened, there's all kinds of variants that happened from that because the new dropped off. I mean, I know I'm talking about you know, Greek now, but I'm hoping it's communicating to you that does, it, does that make a difference at all in the meaning of the text? No. And the, the movable new accounts for like thousands and thousands and thousands of variants. All right. Um, uh, spelling changes. There's uh, word difference. Did you know in Greek, there's like, it's ridiculous, it's like some seven or 800 different ways that you can say Jesus loves John. It, all, it means the exact same thing, but, but scribes may change the word order if they're reading to an audience that is going to hear it in a certain way. Okay, So um, spelling differences, minor scribal errors, hypography, dictography, metathesis, all these things where you skip a line or you skip a word or you add a word after you write the word. We, we do this stuff all the time. How many of y'all are typing and you send a text and it autocorrects for you? You know, it's like, what in the world? Dude, have y'all seen some of the auto-correct, like, funny things on the deal? Dude, that chunk is hilarious. Anyway, <clears throat> I digress. So, approximately a quarter of 1% could viably affect the meaning of the text, but no essential truth is impacted by any variant. 
So somebody turn in their Bible. Um, so here's the deal. It's 828. Um, I'm definitely not going to be done by 830. So if you need to go by 830, peace. All right. If not, sit in with me for about 10 more minutes. All right. Um, so John, somebody turn to John 753. Anybody? Anybody there? Y'all, y'all ever do the Bible drills when you're a kid, you know? Like my wife, I wish my wife was here because she hated that stuff. She's like, man, the guy that won that, I was always like, you're such a dork, you know? Except the guy that won it was me. <laughs> I'm like, you married him. <laughs> All right. All right, who's got it? All right, somebody send it real loud. I'm sorry. Stop. Sorry. So there should be a short little paragraph above John 7.53. Read that out loud really loudly, please. The earliest man All right. A few manuscripts include these verses wholly or in part after John 7, 36, John 25, Luke 24, 33. There you go. And then there's the line from the first thing. Yeah, verse 53. And you should them from stoning her. And he says, hey, you without sin cast the first stone, right? Guess what, guys? That is not in the Bible, right? It's probably what it is. It's probably an early Christian legend that was added much later, okay? That's, like, that's why you hear sometimes people talk about my favorite story that's not in the Bible is John seven fifty three to eight eleven. Now, obviously, edi- editors of these editions are not going to take it out because guess what? You guys would be like, no, right? Not you guys. I mean, I'm just talking about like the masses, you know. So they they leave it in there. They just qualify it with a phrase like that. Um, guess another one. Revelation chapter thirteen verse eighteen. I'll just quote it for you so you don't have to look. But it just says the mark of the beast is this, or the number of the beast is this. What? Oh, come on, guys. The mark of the beast is what? Or the number of the beast. Right? Did you know that some of the earliest and most reliable manuscripts that we have from the book of Revelation, guess what the number is? It's 616. Well, which one is it? You know, I, one of, uh, Dan Wallace, my buddy, um, who's, who I'm getting, I've, I'm, I, I learned this stuff from him. Um, but he, he likes to say, he's like, 666 is, 666 is, the, is the mark of the beast. 616 is like his neighbor that lives down the street. You know what I'm saying? Um, we just, but we don't know. But I mean, you also see, you also see like um, there's massive uh, amounts of, of Christian, like mainly dispensational literature that's written about 666. And the fact is, is we don't know what the number is, right? Well, we know it's not like 782. We know it's 616 or 666 but we don't know which one it is, okay? That's a good example of the, the one quarter of 1% that, that are meaningful and viable differences among manuscripts, all right? But here is the deal. And Bart Ehrman is a guy that wrote a book called Misquoting Jesus. And, and he is by far the loudest skeptic of the t- transmission of the text. And he said this, essential Christian beliefs are not affected by textual variants in the manuscript tradition of the New Testament. And this is a guy that does not believe Right? He just looks at the evidence. Two attitudes to avoid. Absolute certainty, and that is to say, somebody's going to come up to you and say, do we have the exact wording of the New Testament? What's the answer? No, we don't. Right? Or, or we don't know if we have it or not. It, it probably is there. It's just the original plus stuff that's been added over time. 
okay? But we know it's, we, we have A, B, or C. We know it's not D, some random thing over here. It's the, the original is within the text. We, it's just our uh, discipline. It's, our, it's our, really our obligation as people of, um, who, who love God and love his word to, to uh, uh, get back to the original text, the autographer, what we call it. The other one is total despair. And, and this is the attitude where it's like, well, there's a variant. John 73 to 811 is not in there. I don't know what the number of the beast is. I quit. You know? I mean, it's like, whoa, time out, man. That, that's, frankly, that's just irresponsible. Because not only are you abandoning, you're abandoning what? A mountain of evidence that states otherwise. I, I mean, um, yeah, and, and frankly, I, mean, I think what happens is a lot of people, they don't understand the issues, and they've never been taught, they've never been equipped to deal with that. And so um, instead of actually being able to stand the ground in the public square for the integrity of the text, they just bail on it. And, and, and they bail on the truth that will set them free. Two questions to answer. One, how certain are we about the wording of the New Testament? Pretty certain. There's some, there are some uh, sections of it that we just don't, we're not quite sure which call to make. But we make a call in faith and we translate it as such. Okay? Um, and, and the other one is what issues are at stake? So... Um, this is the primary issue that's at stake, and that is the, the last question that we're um, talking about, and that is, did Nicaea deify Jesus? Where it was primitive Christianity fooled into thinking that Jesus was a miracle-working uh, God-man who, who tricked, or, or that, were they fooled to believe that he was that, or was he a guy that, that just tricked his early followers in, into such blind devotion that they later called him a god? Right? Well, it's, it's, that, man, it's a really tough argument to make, um, primarily because of the witnesses that reference Jesus' deity prior to the 4th century, we have this, John 1.1, 1, 1, the word was God. And we have a text that goes back probably into the 1st century for that. John 20.28, 20, my Lord and my God. Romans 9.5, uh, Jesus is the Messiah, he is God over all. Hebrews 1.8, your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. 2 Peter 1.1, 1, 1, our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Right? It's, and so um, uh, when you understand that while the text has been corrupted, you have to understand the nature of its corruption, right? And the fact that we are working to restore it to the autographer. It was never, there was never a time where a scribe said, I'm going to intentionally take out the meaning of this text and insert something that would make Jesus out to be a deity even though he's not. That's a non-argument. That is a misunderstanding of the history of the transmission of the text. And frankly, I mean, there's a, you know, but that is the, that's the Mormon position. That's the Muslim position. There's just no evidence to back it up. And that's where I'm coming to the table. I will freely and excitedly talk about this with people in the public square because I know and am confident that the evidence is on, this, is on the side of the fact that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Right? We're, we, are, um, we are not a blind faith. Man, I, dude, I, I'm telling you, being the leader of the Great Questions team, I see questions all of the time of people who want to challenge the faith and then when they're presented with the evidence, they're speechless but I'm not, dadgummit. I'm presenting you with the truth. It is your responsibility to respond or not. 
But just know that the consequences are eternal, right? One of my, no, my favorite author of all time is a guy named Clive Staples Lewis. Lewis. He wrote a book called Mere Christianity. He said, I'm trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. I'm ready to accept him as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That's the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would be either a lunatic on the level with the man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that option open to us. He did not intend to. Right? Christian, the heart of Christianity is not a book that you open and read at night. The heart of Christianity is a person. And the book that you open and read tonight is a faithful transcription of what the early church saw with their eyes, touched with their hands, and experienced with their senses. Namely, that Jesus came, claimed to be God, died on a cross, and rose from the dead. And and you will know the truth, and it will set you free. Not a book, but a person. A person that you have a relationship with. God is using the text of Scripture as a double-edged sword to pierce into the very heart of who you are. And we can't just simply defend the, defend the book. We have to present the man and allow the public square to respond to the love of God that he has bestowed richly on us in Christ Jesus. I know the man. And he radically changed my heart. And he'll change yours too. Don't be afraid to present this stuff in the public square. This is a tough question, but it has an answer. Equip yourself and then go and be, right? Go and be. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's risen from the dead, we worship you and love you In your precious name, amen. Hey, if y'all have questions, come on. See y'all next week.